I didn't expect in 2020 to have difficult conversations about racial equity and the racial DNA and structures in our country. But now that we're having that conversation, there's no going back and pretending like you didn't hear it. So I think going forward with theater, making sure that we are inclusive of those voices that we have long ignored, whether or not we mean to silence them or not, but that just haven't been heard, I think is important. And I hope that the theater of tomorrow is stories I've not heard of, that every time I walk in a theater, I am surprised and my world, my vision of the world is broadened because I am hearing a story I've not heard. Hi, I'm Eric Ostro. Welcome to season two of Live at the Lortel. We created this podcast to invite artists working off-Broadway to share their current projects. As we start season two, theater is still on pause. But while our stages are silent, the theater is undergoing a reckoning of twin pandemics, the COVID-19 virus and the virus of systemic racism. This season, we're sharing this platform with different co-hosts from the BIPOC community as we roll up our sleeves to talk to artists about creating art during COVID, as well as systemic racism in our community and country. We hope these conversations will help motivate and begin to heal as we discuss these painful issues. Daphne Rubin Vega and I met quite a few years ago through a dear mutual friend, Michael. We immediately found that we spoke the same language and have spent many hours talking about everything from the theater to relationships. When the idea came up to have a co-host for this podcast, Daphne was one of the first people I thought of. And while everyone knows Daphne is Mimi from Rent and her other award-winning roles, I just know her as a really dear friend. Good morning, everybody. Thank you and welcome to Live with the Lortel. My name is Eric Ostro, and I would really love to welcome all of you today to, it's a Zoom webinar that we're doing with our incredible guest, Telly Leong. But first things first, I would love to introduce my dear friend and co-host. This is the first of many podcasts that we'll be doing together, my dear friend, Daphne Rubin Vega. Daphne, welcome. Hi, Eric. How are you? How are you? <laughs> I'm pretty good. Hanging in there during a pandemic. I know. We're all hanging in as yeah. best as we can. You look great. Thank you. So do you. <laughs> we're far, but we're right here. I know, I know. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest, actor, singer, activist, songwriter, Telly Leong. Telly, welcome to Live at the Lortel. Hi, I'm thrilled to be here. How are you all? Oh, it's so good to see everybody in their Zoom screens. That's so, it's so great. It's in so good apartments. to see you. And I have to say, Eric, I was, uh, you know, I did not know that Daphne was going to be the co-host of this. You know, I have to say I was sort of starstruck when I heard that. So it was right. sort of amazing. And, and Daphne, I saw you and miss you like hell. I thought it was great. But, you know, you have to know that like Rent was the, you know, when I was 16, Rent was the show that made me want to do theater. So it has a very soft place in my heart. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be here with you guys. I'm really glad that you're part of that family, too. Yeah. I know it was it was a nice connection to make and I knew when Telly when we were having you on and I was thinking about a co-host the only person I could think of would be my friend Daphne so I'm I, I was so glad hey let's just start off with how are you where are you like you know it's been an in insane six seven months in our world Tell me how you are, where you are, what's going on? Uh, uh, yeah, thanks for asking. I'm good. I am in Midtown Manhattan. I live in Hell's Kitchen. I'm a native New Yorker. So, I, you know, my family's in Brooklyn. You know, I've 
I was born and raised here. Uh, I went to high school in the city. You know, I only went away to go to college or I, I go away to, you know, do, do jobs out of town. But like, this is my home. So, you know, I'm here. You know, I know that there was sort of a mass exodus out of New York City in March and April. And I, and I went, where am I going to go? This is where I am. This is where my home is. This is where my family is. My husband and I, Jimmy, Jimmy and I share a small 500 square foot apartment that we've had for the last 13 years here in Midtown. He's in the other room working from home on a teleconference call and I'm here, you know, with you guys. So this is sort of our day to day now for the last seven months. And we try not to kill each other in this tiny apartment. We haven't yet. So I think he's the one. <laughs> yeah, 500 square feet between two people. I understand my husband is here. I banish him to the other side of the apartment. And, you know, towards the end of the day, we, we kind of meet up. A most amazing thing that everyone was able to see on Instagram and everything was what you were involved with the other day. Uh, can you talk about the experience? You tell me, go. Yeah, well, uh, you know, um, my dear friend and also Rent family member, Michael McElroy, he called me and he said, we're doing this very special thing for a campaign called NYC Next. Sort of, it's going to be performances and moments that are shot all over New York City as New York City tries to figure out how we wake up from this pandemic, how we come back from this stronger and better, how we bring life back into the city, how we say life has never really left the city. It's always been here. We've all sort of been locked down and we're trying to be safe and try to protect each other and take care of each other. But New York City is very much still alive and vibrant. And so he and Tom Kitt and Brian Perry, musical director Brian Perry, got together and said, let's do the Broadway Inspirational Voices version of Sunday. And what was amazing about it was Michael called people in his theatrical family to come together and sing it on the steps of the TKTS booth in Duffy Square. We were all in face masks and face shields, and we took off our masks so that we could sing. And the incredible Bernadette Peters came and sang with us as the soloist. So it was sort of a wonderful, you know, marriage of what Sunday the Park with George was, and then what Michael did with it. And also, all of us coming together for the first time in months, having a moment just to share space together and share a song together. And I think I was much more emotional than I thought I would be. And I think I've had so many people watch that video now say, it caught them by surprise how emotional they became watching it. You know, and I, and I think it's because this thing that we've missed, this community, this, this mm -hmm. theatrical family, the coming together, the bringing together of people to make something, to make a moment, to make an event, something I, I don't know if I realized how much I missed until I was there on those steps of Times Square. And then after we sang Sunday, a marching band came marching through Duffy Square and played Give My Regards to Broadway. Yeah, and then miraculously, it started to rain right after that. So it was it was as if the heavens held off the rain till the musical number was done, till we had shot it, till the marching band was done. And then all of a sudden it started to rain, which I thought was a beautiful, you know, uh, cosmic moment. Yeah. Wow, it was an incredible thing to watch. I mean, it's all over Instagram and you can, you can Google it and see the voices, the blend sent shivers down my spine just to see the community coming together to sing this song that's so iconic and says so much about where we are and how we are, it, it blew me away. And you know, and I really have to give it up for our dear friend, Michael, you know, Michael McElroy, who just won a Tony Award last year, an honorary Tony for 
all of his wonderful work at BIV, Broadway Inspirational Voices. Not only did they celebrate 25 years, but in that 25 years, what started as a choir to help raise money for Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS, then became an outreach program for kids in areas where they're not getting arts training. You know, they work with the Ronald McDonald House. They work with the Covenant House here in New York City. I mean, they do incredible work. So my dear friend Michael has been bringing people together for the last 25 years, and he continues to do that now. And we actually have, you know, we also get to teach together often at the new studio on Broadway at NYU and also at the Jimmy Awards. It's been really, you know, he's such a master at that, of bringing people together and asking them to be generous of spirit. And when, whenever Michael's involved, I just say yes. So I just, you know, and saying yes that afternoon was so good for my soul to be able to do that. Yeah, I bet. I'm just dissenting and and so moved to see how, yeah, the need for community, you said it yourself, and the need to um, come together and sort of reverse this myth that New York is, you know, shriveling on the vine. Like that's the antithesis of, of what we do. You know, we just power through and find each other and find the community. So I was just saying yes, yes, yes. And Daphne, you're from here too. You're you're a New Yorker too, yeah? Yeah, right now I'm blocks away from you. Yeah, regrettably, not regrettably, um, lucky for us, I um, we did go up state to our, we left the city. I come back, you know, I have incredible luck in doing that. But, you know, I look around and I see, huh, you know, the people on my block are like, a lot of them are, are the inequality, the disparity. Is, yeah. is so heartbreaking. So, you know, it's beautiful when when we can come together and like sort of give spiritual expression to everyone, you know, without exclusivity. I don't know what to say. No. It is interesting. This The pandemic has revealed, I mean, it's, it's an awful thing and over 210,000 people have died in our country and it's terrible and all people all over the world. But it's also been, I think, also very revealing you know, it's been a, I think in a lot of ways, it's been a, a test for all of us. And it's certainly been a test on this administration, you know, and I think that they've failed miserably. So it's time for new leadership. And it's also been a test for artists. You know, it's been a test for us to sort of continue to find ways of still making music, still telling stories, still reaching people. And yes, there are going to be days where it's hard. There are going to be days where you don't feel motivated at all. I've certainly had those days where I all I want to do is sit on my couch, watch Netflix, eat a pint of ice cream. Is that so bad? I don't mean Not to. bad at all. And then there are days where I feel super motivated. I say yes to everything. And I'm so thrilled I say yes to those things. Like saying yes to singing in Times Square with Michael. Like saying yes to doing this with you this morning. It's such a wonderful... We're still continuing what it is that we do as theater artists. So... I think you need both. I think that's what's been revealed to me during this time is that New Yorkers, we tend to be so busy, especially if you're living a busy showbiz life. You're off and you're running from one thing to the next. All of a sudden, you're forced to slow down and you're sort of forced not only to ask tough questions about yourself and who you are as an artist, but you're asked tough questions about society and what we can change and what we can do better and, and, and who this pandemic really does affect. It does affect people that are black and brown in an unequal way. So it's, you know, it's time that we recognize that and really take care of those people that need some taking care of. So, you know, yes, I, I agree. 
First of all, I wanted to say you were saying, is it, I said, it's okay, though. You were like, drink a bottle of vodka. So, like, you know, I mean, I guess, <laughs> you know, sometimes you, you got to drink a bottle of vodka. Listen, I'm, I'm drinking coffee right now, and I just heard Broadway shut down until June 1st. So, I believe, believe if there's a little something special in the coffee. Wait till noon. Noon. <laughs> noon. Yeah, yeah, no, no. The, you can't take my coffee. Um, but I, I, um, I, I wanted to touch on the forcing of slowing down. Like when we are forced to, to take a, a global social timeout, you know, a cultural timeout in a way to awaken and that we actually belong to a community that can benefit from the pause in order to say something that's even deeper. Because I think that as much as some of us may try very difficult, you know, <laughs> I'm thinking of flower drum song. And the reason I think of flower is because, you know, a flower is a result of the plant, you know, it is the result, the, the, the fruition, the flower is not the fruit, it's the flower, but um, that we're experiencing the flowering and the fruition actually of a history of a, an american history it's not like all of a sudden we woke up and like there's chaos this chaos has actually been waiting to happen and to have the pause to to be able to speak to it directly so i mean i think that that i love i love you and i love your work because just by dint of you being in the work you're making a statement. Mm -hmm. Same with what Michael McElroy does and what he does with, you know, he's impeccable at how he does it. Well, and yeah. you, Daphne, I, I would say the same of you. You know, I thought, I felt all of that watching Miss You Like Hell, I, I really did. I felt, I was like, oh, this story needs to be told. You know, when I was watching that story at the public, I was like, this is, yes, you can read the headlines and you can read the stats in a newspaper, but until you see it come alive in characters and you sit in a theater, in a dark theater, and you watch that story happen in front of you, then I can attach a character and a person to that headline that I've read about what's happening at the border. So I, I think that it really is the power of theater. This is why, you know, I know so many people say New York is shut down and the theater is dead. And, you know, where is the theater going? I was like, it's not dead. We're gonna, we need the theater. Yeah. We need it. We need it to deal with all of the craziness that is being thrown at us at all times. If anything, I feel like it's gotten crazier because we don't have theater to help us relate to all of the madness that's happening right now. We don't have that thing. We can't go and have a place where we can empathize with people that are outside of our circle, you know, uh, by watching somebody else's story right now. That's what's hard, you know? Kelly, did you feel before all, before we shut down and before George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and everything, the madness that's happening in this country, did you, did you feel any sort of change starting to happen within our community in terms of change with race and colorblind casting and all of that stuff? Do you, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. I think it's certainly, you know, if you look at the trajectory of representation on theater, of course it's gotten better. And of course it's gotten better with shows like Rent and shows like Hamilton and even shows like Wicked where, you know, when I was cast in Wicked, they said, it's Oz, who cares? I know the original cast was all Caucasian people, but it's Oz, you know, and Joe Mantello and that creative team was very adamant about it should be, it should be a very multi-ethnic cast as this show continues to run for, you know, over a decade, right? And so, yes, of course the representation has gotten better, but, you know, 
as, as a person of color growing up in New York City with immigrant parents, you know, there is a conversation that is had when you grow up as a minority in New York with immigrant parents. They pull you aside and they go, listen, you are in a country that says it is liberty and justice and equality for all, but you look the way you do and people will look at you based on your skin color and they will make preconceptions of you or they will judge you or they will have they won't know you they will know your skin color and they will have ideas about you but that means you actually have to work a little harder and that was just something that i as a growing up because i my parents had that conversation with me as a little kid i just went okay like that's just the way the world is right and then george floyd happened and then brianna taylor ahmaud arbery all, all of then this discussion happened and we were able to have it because the world had a slowdown. We were all able to have it together where we go, oh, we're having that conversation, that conversation that I never thought would be a conversation for the public. Right. I, that conversation that I felt like was a private conversation that my parents had with me as a little kid. Now we're having that in a major global way where people are now going, oh, you had that conversation as a kid. Most of my Caucasian friends who are actors are like, my parents never had that conversation with me. And I was it, like, they didn't have to. They didn't have to have it with you. <laughs> you know, and that's sort of getting at the crux of of the inequity of how our country is built. It's part of our country's DNA and we have to reckon with it in order to really make any sort of change to it. I never thought that I would see that sort of change in my lifetime. I never thought we would be having this conversation. I was just prepared to go about my life, work as hard as I'm working and go, you know, everybody's cards are dealt differently. What you're dealt in the card game of life, everybody gets a different hand. And so I'm gonna make the best out of my hand. And that's always sort of how I've been in my career. But if we're gonna have the conversation, and I think it's great we're having the conversation, awesome. And maybe it took a pandemic for us to actually slow down and have it, you know? I sometimes feel, though, that we're not really having the conversation, that we talk around it because we, we talk about results, but we don't talk about the history, that like the need for having uh, a structure. But that structure, in order to profit, has to stand on the shoulders of certain people. And how it really relates to a physical appearance. It really is all reduced to, you know, that 0.1% that makes us all different in our genetic codes, because we're really like 99.999% this, you know, Same. and we're made all, we're all made of stardust. And, you know, you can, you can, you, can, you know, DM me about that later. But, um, you know, it, it's amazing that, that it's hard to see what you can't see when when you're white and you you're so used to having a conversation centered around the normality of whiteness you know people say normalcy i say normality but then then it's like no 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 let's not talk about that because it's really the caste system that i want to focus on is about money like i just you know i'm brown but i can i'm going to strive to be a 1% and if i can't be better, I'll just be different, you know? And that like this occurrence, I mean, to say Brianna and Ahmad, it's like, wow, it's taken us that long to, uh, to awaken? You know, it takes what it takes. You know, I think that theater is very much responding to that in a, like a tectonic way. And that this closure 
you know, to some is like, you know, horrible corrosion, which when you think about it in financial terms, it is. <laughs> um, and like, what are we going to do to help that? Like, how are we actively going to restore that? It can happen. But as far as being like what it was, I don't think so. You know, I don't, I don't know if I want it to be what it was, to be honest. There's so much about it that I'm not sure I want it to be what it was, you know, and I and I agree, Daphne. It's a it is a power structure thing and it is a representation in power thing. I was so struck the other night by Kamala Harris talking about packing the courts in the vice presidential debate and how she says this administration has packed the courts with federal judges, lifetime appointments. None of them are black. Well, and, and, yeah. and, and for that person to say, for, for then a, the vice president to say, we don't have a race problem. Well, actually, like we do. And on the micro level with the theater world, like where are the producers of color, the theater owners of color, the artistic directors of color? There just aren't enough of us to really make the sort of change that we want on a structural level. And so I am hopeful, I, and I do think change is going to take a long time, but I think the beginning of that change is this conversation that we are having that, again, never thought we'd have it. I was just willing to be a minority actor working within the structures of what is sort of a, a white-centric structure. How many times, and just give me a fast number, have you overheard someone referring to you as the talent? Just quickly, how many times? Over a hundred? Yes, tons. Okay. So like the talent, it's like, you know, it's like, don't educate the talent. Don't bring them in the room because we don't want them to know too much. <laughs> right? And so it's a really glamorous form of that structure which, you know, has been historically called a word that like we hate, you know but that is actually part of the foundation of this culture, which is to enslave, right? So, well, you know, yeah. slaves don't get paid and slaves don't have agency. So we're not slaves because we get paid and we have agents, <laughs> you know? But um, it's like, there is no conversation. It seems like this is a monologue really among one group because we have not gotten a response from the powers that be. They will not answer. Is that correct? Not yet, not yet. We haven't heard it yet. I'm hopeful that there is some sort of answer and I'm hopeful that at some point, especially with theater shut down, you do need the talent. You do need us for the rebirth of theater. And in some ways, like there has to be a meeting in the middle as we figure out what theater looks like after this pandemic. We, we have to, there has to be. I don't know if people are interested in the kind of theater that doesn't represent them anymore. Not after what we've gone through this year, not after what we've seen in the news, not after all the protests that have happened all over the country, you know, all over the world, in fact. Like, there are certain things that are not going to be acceptable anymore on our side as the talent and also audiences. I don't know if audiences want to pay for that kind of theater anymore either. The audiences, they can afford to pay for theater. I think that, you know, to talk about the things that we're talking about right now is a little bit like trauma porn, you know? <laughs> like, I think the idea for success is how far away from people like us some people can get. So how do we come together to, to try to put our hand in some change of some kind? Kelly, what do you think needs to happen? I think that the people in charge who are, are mostly white people that are in charge of the theater world, the real power holders yeah. mm -hmm. have to 
amplify those voices that have not been heard for a really long time and bring those people into the room and recognize the fact that bringing those voices into the room that have not had a chance to be heard actually makes the theater better. You know, I have so many friends who are you know, they're, they're either choreographers of color or they're, they're designers of color and they go at the end of the night at a production meeting, oftentimes I'm the only person of color or women, I'm the only woman at this production meeting at midnight after tech rehearsal. Yeah. And there's a scene about a woman on stage and they go, it wouldn't it be, and she feels sort of like, I can't, I can't act, I'm the only woman here represent, like if I had another sister here to help me voice this. But the thing is, I think it's, it only makes for good theater when you have all of those voices in a room. And I think it has to come down to it's better quality and people will come. So it's not only good for the art, but it's also gonna end up being good for your pocketbook as theater makers and theater producers to bring those people in a room. I think that's sort of the beginning of the fix is putting some of those people in charge and just giving them, here's the mic, say what it is you need to say. I wanna hear what you have to say about this. I think it starts with the humility of saying, I don't know everything because my vision of the world is this. And we all have a vision of the world that is this. But as we bring more people into a room together, our blinders start to, to widen and we go, oh, got it, okay, this is all of us. I think that's sort of the process that needs to happen, commercially and artistically. I think it's both. Yeah, yeah. you're absolutely right. You and Daphne have this incredible connection in terms of you got to play, you were in Rent, you got to play Angel. I actually was just staying up really late last night. I would love to talk a little bit about your, your artistry and your art, and then we can come back to this at the end. But you got to, to be in Rent and then play Angel on Broadway, and then you did it again at the Hollywood Bowl. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You guys have such an incredible connection to this magnificent show. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with playing Angel and your road to it? Yeah, I was actually in the final company. You know, Daphne was in the first company. I was in the final company. Oh. And in the final company, I was Steve and others. And I covered Angel. And there were moments where, you know, that show had been running for so long that actually all the covers that were in that building by that last company had all done the role at some point. So like I had done the role for a couple of months and then went back to playing Steve. It's in a lot of ways, it felt like a company. It felt like a Shakespearean company that was it's like- Initial you know, repertory company. Abs absolutely, <laughs> it felt like a repertory company. Cause like, you know, I was in a dressing room. I had played Angel, but my dressing roommate is a wonderful actor named Sean Earl who had played Angel on the yeah. tour and all that, who was, a, you know, part of a dear part of the Rent family. But like you know, on some night, that was what was so great about it was when you did Rent and somebody was on, it would be like, oh my gosh, I haven't seen Sean play Angel since the national tour and now he's on today and it's going to be great. So like whenever somebody assumed a role, the show was completely different and in that way it felt awesome you know you were squeegee man one night but you were angel the next it was very much like you know shakespeare companies where judy dench would be you know lady m one night and carrying a spear the next like right, you right. know it was, that was what was so great about it and it really was a, a family you know there's a wonderful the stage manager there who was part of the new york theater workshop crystal our uh, final, you was, don't want to know what i call her <laughs> <laughs> i guess these days it would be so politically incorrect but Oh my God, I loved my pussy. <laughs> what I love about her was she gave us all a spreadsheet of every person that had played your role from the beginning of the run to the last. So, so for example, we got a sheet that said Mimi, 
Daphne Urban Vega from this date to this date and all, would go all the way down to every single Mimi from the date they entered. And if they came back, that date was in there, you know? And then at the end, it was Renee Goldsberry. Yes. And, it the and it was the same for me, it was Gilles. Gilles was at the top of the list. And then every person that I had played, Steve and others, would then be on the list. And my, you know, Angel, same thing. It was like the Angel Wilson, and then it would go, oh, Telly did it for three months here, you know, and then it went back to Steve, and then it would end it with Justin Johnson. I mean, the legacy of that, to be, see to, that. To be able to see that is really yes. incredible. And to also know that there actually weren't that many, in the time that it ran, there actually weren't that many people who did rent. If you looked at how long that run was, I think people, A, people stayed for a long time because they loved doing the show. And I've always said, if the show was still running now, I'd still be doing it. I would have no reason to leave because... That was one of those shows that, A, when I was 16 years old, I was one of those kids sleeping on 41st Street, getting a $20 ticket and like sleeping with the bums <laughs> and like risking my life. If my parents ever Uber knew- drivers. Uh, absolutely. You know, like, so I was one of those kids. I made friends with people that were on the line. Mm -hmm. I sat, I got my $20 ticket. I think I saw rent, you know, with my $20 two, first two row seats for, you know, I think I, that summer of 97, I think I saw it like, 14, 15 times, you know, and I was that rent head. So when Crystal put me in the show, I had three weeks to learn Steve and others and also my angel understudy assignments. I learned the show in three days and Crystal went, are you sure you've never done this show before? You know the show so well. I said, Crystal, I've been doing the show in my brain for the last 10 years of my life. Like this, there's no other show I know better. So for me to actually get to do the show was an amazing moment for me to then get to do it with Anthony and Adam. I felt like I was in my own, am I in my own Broadway bootleg of Rent? <laughs> I was pin I was pinching myself. There's a moment in the opening number that they call the clump where, you know, the two boys are singing downstage and everybody else in the company clumps behind yes. them and they sing, how do you document? <laughs> right, so that's the clump in the back and oftentimes there's some tomfoolery and, 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 and some joking around in the clump because it's the one moment we're all together. The first night they did the show, I was like, this is so bizarre and crazy to have those two original cast members there and now with the final company, the legacy, the history between that and knowing that we are now sharing a stage together, telling the same story, singing those same songs tonight, it was it was electric, you it's know? It's like turning the camera around. It's like, oh my God, this is the reverse. I, I never thought I'd see this reverse angle. <laughs> never, never. It must have been so completely surreal to be able to, to be sitting in the audience, to be a rent head standing online, and then all of a sudden you're on the stage. Wow, that's unbelievable. You know, the other moment that was, I'll never forget the moment that I, Again, just doing a show, but it was the first night that the Larson family, that I experienced having the Larson family in the house. And so what was my spot in Seasons of Love is right in front of Al and Nan's house seats. That was one night I remember singing Seasons and I could barely get through it because I, it dawned on me. I said, oh, and you, you know, once you do the show, you realize the Larsons treat you like their kids. Yeah. You know, they treat you like you're a part of the family, which is why I think that cast has stayed so close through every incarnation of that show. They're connected to every tour, every national tour, even the Hollywood Bowl. They were very much there with us, even though it was only 10 days and three shows. They were part of that process. And being there and going, oh, I am, we are carrying what Jonathan left behind. We are there. That's why we are their kids. This, this show that happens eight times a week is he is alive in some way in this music and in us. Our job is to keep that going and keep that alive and keep singing those songs and keep telling that story. And it's, it was really moving to have 
to see Alan Mann there, you know, uh, it was unbelievable, you know. So um, I'll never forget that moment either. Yeah. It had a, a, a talismanic quality being in that show. It was like having, having a talisman, you know, and being surrounded by a power. <laughs> and did you, but Daphne, like, did you know when you were doing this downtown, did you have any idea it was going to be this, you know, like what it, what it would end um, up being? Of course not. No. I mean, it was really beyond, beyond. It was a real lesson in uh, something, you know, beyond a wildest dream. It was something that was born of great love and great, great pain. In equal measure, it seemed, it was extremely humbling and really kind of, <laughs> you know, beautifully traumatizing because as much as I felt like, you know, I was touched by God to deliver this message, you know, like you got to be careful when you start feeling like you've been chosen to do stuff. I mean, you know, I didn't really go down that kind of chosen thing, but it's, um, it's weird when it's like, oh, wait, yesterday he was here. He was here yesterday, and day before yesterday, nobody knew my name, and they know my name because he's not here, I think, or that's the way they, like, it could be really strange, or, you know, you know, people, this is a running theme that, that uh, really, really now has different prismic effects, but it's like, oh my God, you're amazing, but be careful, because you're not gonna be amazing, like, in this kind of way, again, or in, a, in, in this capacity, like it's part of a zeitgeist and for that. So to just navigate your life inside of that could, could have been really, is weird. And sometimes I absolutely hated it, but mm -hmm. you know, it's been a long time. So I love it. You know, like you could say anything to me and it was like watching, watching it being born again and again and again. And I like what you said because it really was a show where you could have moving parts and it would still work in different ways. Each character was major and it depended how you kind of saw it. I learned one of the best lessons about that I had doing that show from Michael Greif and also from Evan Ensign, which was, you know, the first two Broadway shows I'd done before Rent, I was also an understudy. And I came into Rent as an understudy and, you know, understudying in Rent I just did what any normal understudy would normally do in a Broadway show, which is sort of feel like I was filling in the hole for the night, making sure the show would keep going and sort of like a little bit doing some of the choices that the person I was of the people I was understudying to sort of maintain a rhythm of the show and all of that. And Michael and Evan were like, stop, 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 stop. They're like, don't you can't do that actually on this show. He's like, I know that you're used to understudying in other shows. He's like, but you have to find that for yourself. We actually encourage you because he's like, listen, the show is tables and chairs and lights and like a metal structure and the set never changes. It's like the only thing we real, the show is you. Like it's that is it. Word at the time. And you have to, right. You have to bring yourself to it because your humanity, that is what's on display. Your individuality, that is what's on display. That is what has to fill these characters because frankly, it's not about the set or the costumes or whatever. It's, it has to be you and that's what people relate to and I went oh right I'm allowed that in this show I'm allowed that sort of freedom and also I you know the blessing of a yeah the blessing of a company that follows you that goes yeah it's you tonight we're with you we got you 
you know what I mean? Like that doesn't happen all the time. I think that was really the the true, I think the secret sauce of Rent is that it was always, because if you were inauthentic in that show, it, it read loud and clear because there's nothing to hide behind. It really is just tables and chairs and lights. If you were inauthentic, it didn't work. You know? Can I ask you about, you know, knowing, knowing stuff inside out and being like an understudy? I got to give a shout out to understudies because they know, like, come on. They got to like learn everything and then sit back and watch somebody else do it just in case, you know, and and hope for the best, but be ready that if somebody gets sick, falls down, doesn't show up, that they're going to like come up and pick up the pieces seamlessly and try not to disappoint the people who came to see somebody else. I mean, it's like obstacle on obstacle. Like, tell us about that. Yeah, are, I mean, understudies are understudies to me are unsung heroes. And the yeah. part that is really difficult is as an understudy, you're on maybe a night, two nights in a row, and then you don't do it for a while, right? If that person comes back to work and they're well, and you hope that they're well, you hope they get better and they're back at their jobs and you're back at your track. But after not doing it for a while, then all of a sudden if that person is out again, you're all of a sudden asked to like, <laughs> oh gosh, I have to like, seamlessly go into this as if I was doing this eight times a week. So the maintenance of going, oh, like I have to always somehow keep this fresh, even though I don't get to do it every night. I think that's really, really hard. And, and I beg, you know, everybody to show those understudies some some grace when you see that slip in your playbill, because um, it's it's a really tricky job. It's a hard job. I know a lot about you now. I've been <laughs> studying you for the past week and watching interviews and, and reading things. And you love to teach. Tell me a little bit about your teaching experience and, you know, why you're so passionate about passing it on. I love to teach because I had amazing teachers, you know, that helped me. I would not be where I am today without phenomenal teachers. I went to a math and science high school in New York City and I did Stuyvesant. theater. I went to Stuyvesant. Yeah. And I, and again, like not really, I wasn't, I don't know if I was ever destined or trapped to be a show person. That's what happened in my life. But I did theater after school because it was fun. And it was where I found my tribe. And the teacher there that volunteered his time, he taught mechanical drafting and engineering, but he volunteered his time after school, didn't get paid any extra money to help us, you know, put on a show, build the sets, rehearse, at three to six. So, and, and like, his name is Vinny Grasso. I'll never forget him. He's no longer with us, but I'll, you know, I, I feel like I carry his torch. And honestly, that's why I teach because there are people like that that have helped me along the way. And now that I've done this for quite some time now, you know, and I'm getting older, I feel like it's my duty to pass it on in, in some way. In 2016, I went through a crazy vocal surgery where I was like not singing for a while. Our amazing voice teacher, Liz Kaplan, put me back together. I had an amazing vo vocal therapist and all of that. But like, I also feel like it's important now, even that experience, something that was sort of scary for me as a performer, I went, you know what, I'm going to recover from this, learn how to sing better, speak better, and then be able to pass it on to students so they don't go through this. So, and now it's weird, you know, in my 20s, all I wanted to do was perform. And in my 30s, I felt this shift going, 
oh, there, I want to do more than just perform. Again, I want to be more than just the talent, right, in the room. I want to, like, also really either shape the future of what this art form is by teaching and, and giving the knowledge that I got to acquire to the next generation and have them run with it or start producing or start whatever that is that I end up doing, right, or making my own work. But then in my 40s, I really decided, oh, right, all of that experience I got in my 20s and 30s was meant to be something I give away now is meant to go, okay, now take this and take this, what I've learned, don't do that, don't make those mistakes. Now take that and advance it to the next level. How terrified were you with, with the vocal issues that you had? I mean, that's your, your instrument, your, oh, yeah. your livelihood. Yeah, scared out of my mind, you know, and I, you know, of course, everybody hears the horrific, like the Julie Andrews story of like never singing again, you know, Joan, Joan Rivers, you know, having a vocal procedure and passing away from that. Like, it is frightening. And I've identified myself as a singer for so long. That's my bread and butter. It's, you know, your voice is as unique as a fingerprint, you know, on your body. So I, and I sort of had to reckon with the fact that if this surgery doesn't go well, I might not sing again. What ended up happening was I had an amazing group of people between a voice teacher and a vocal coach and uh, all of those things, you know, a, a voice therapist that really like sewed my voice back together and taught me how to sing smarter and better than I ever did in my 20s. So now I feel like I feel like I, I know so much more and I'm so much more, uh, you know, I was just always one of these people that had a strong voice. So I just got up and I, you know, I would just open my mouth and sing. And now I'm much smarter about it. And not only am I smarter about it for myself, I feel like I'm smarter about it now for my students. As, as, I, as I work with them. I have a question from one of our audience members, which is with Broadway being closed until next June, what projects are keeping you busy now? Yeah, I do a lot of virtual teaching, sometimes at NYU, sometimes with master classes. And what's sort of great about the virtual world is I can teach a master class in Ireland. I can teach a class in Japan. It's totally doable. You know, if you want to deal with the time zones and wake up early in the morning or stay up late at night, totally doable. So I've been doing a lot of that. There's a wonderful producer in my world that has also become a mentor. He was a producer in Godspell. That was the first thing he produced. He's Since then, he has produced Allegiance and The Prom and SpongeBob. But his other job, his other jobs besides being a Broadway producer is He's a big sort of a, a leader in the learning and development world, in the corporate world. He, his name is Elliot Maisie. He and I have partnered together during the beginning of this pandemic to do a free Zoom concert on Fridays called the Empathy Concert. And he felt like it was important for the corporate world to have a real discussion about empathy, especially with at the beginning of COVID, you know, as as corporate people had to lay off people, furlough people, as people had to deal with switching from real offices to virtual offices. And he said, who better to have a conversation with corporate people about empathy than actors? It is our job eight times a week to take ourselves out of our own vision of understanding and be someone else for the night. We are seeing the world through somebody else's eyes. We are walking in somebody else's shoes. We can really learn a lot from theater artists about empathy. And of course, that was in April. Then with everything that happened with George Floyd, with Breonna Taylor, with social and racial justice, the conversation shifted to how do we have an empathetic conversation about that, especially in the workplace, especially about representation and structures in corporate America to reflect the necessary conversations and changes we're going to need. And then the conversation, the empathy conversation continues as we head into 
teachers going back to school and feeling nervous about going back to school, kids and parents feeling nervous about that. How are kids dealing with the pandemic? We did a whole empathy concert that was geared just for families and kids with, you know, with parents working at home and having their kids learn right beside them with virtual learning. We've continued to do that. We actually have another empathy episode next week, but we do them on Fridays and you can check them out at Maisie.com. They are free. They are Zoom concerts. In fact, the people at Corp Zoom Corporate have actually watched our concerts and gone, this is incredible what you guys are doing on Zoom, you know, doing full concerts with Broadway stars coming on. And Elliot has generously sort of given gifts to, you know, actors to come on and sing a couple of songs. And it's a wonderful way to keep actors employed. But he's also made donations to the, it started off with the Actors Fund. He makes donations to the Actors Fund in that actor's name. And then it shifted. Then he started making donations to the Black Lives Matter movement, to the NAACP, you know, it, and continues to, to shift. And the conversation continues to shift. And especially now as we head into an election, you know, being, I think the conversation around empathy is going to be even more important, not just heading into the election, but the fallout after the election, no matter what happens, we're going to have to start working a little harder, seeing the world through each other's eyes. You know, even if we don't agree on everything, we sort of have to start having some sort of understanding and coming together because, you know, this, this pandemic doesn't care if you're Republican or Democrat, they really don't. <laughs> yeah. So that's been really great. I'm working on a really fun project, which I, I want everybody to stay tuned and watch my social media for, but it's going to be a Christmas project that me and some of my Broadway friends and some of my puppeteering friends have all come together. We really wanted to create something that was family friendly, an original musical that the whole family could enjoy. And it's going to be free for people to watch over the holidays. It'll be ready to go for the whole month of December. We're not quite ready to announce what it is and who's in it yet. Uh, we want to keep that a surprise, but stay tuned. I have another, one more question from one of our audience members. Um, what has been the most rewarding thing about the work you do? The most rewarding thing is knowing that no matter where it is I'm telling a story, whether it's live on a stage, whether it's a Zoom concert that's free for people, whether it's this interview, knowing that as theater artists and as performers, we have no idea who we affect and touch. We have no idea who's sitting in the dark and whose lives we've changed, right? All we do is we show up, we do the work the best that we can, we bring ourselves and our humanity to the work and we hope it moves people, but we actually don't know who that actually touches. Like, you know, I'm here with Daphne right now, like Daphne has no idea that I was that high school kid sitting in the front row of Rent, bawling my eyes out, she just was doing her show for that night and being Mimi that night, but like no idea that that performance would change the course of my life and make me want to do theater. And that I think is the most rewarding part. We have no idea who we affect and who we touch and the kind of ripple effect that we have as artists. I think that's what keeps me in the arts, you know, because being in the arts is hard. It is especially hard now because we don't know the path forward for our industry. There's no I know, path forward, right? We, don't, we just don't know yet. We right. don't know. But I think I have to keep being an artist till the day I die for that reason, because mm -hmm. I know that what I do and what I'm capable of doing, which is telling a story, making people feel something, whether that's through a scene or a song or whatever that is, is effective. It's doing some good in the world. And I might not be able to see that good right away. I might not be able to like tangibly know who it is, but if I put it out there and if I keep doing this, that hopefully it does affect people in a positive way. So I think, you know, I might not be performing forever. I might be in a classroom. I might be producing things like this Christmas thing. I'm producing it. I just know that if I keep being an artist and putting stuff out there that I believe in, that I think is going to be positive for the world, that hopefully it touches somebody, 
you know. I used but, to always say that it used to be like an early like prayer for me that was like, and I meant it that if one person hears and is moved, if one person, then I've done my job. <laughs> of course, it was like you know, like my ego took over, and I forgot that I used to say that, but um, it became about something else. But it, it's it's true, you know. It's um, it's not it's not a job. It's a vocation. Like, don't do it if you're not gonna. You know, I like to say artists will art. Like that's what we do. We art, <laughs> and we're gonna just keep arting. And um, <laughs> I'm stealing that, Daphne. Artists will art, and we are gonna keep arting. I'm stealing it. You know, and listen, theater sometimes is a job. Eight times a week is hard. Being on a set is hard. And that prayer that you say, Daphne, is oftentimes what I say to myself if it's like the eighth show of the week and I'm exhausted. I go, <laughs> but you know what? There's somebody out in that audience who has is seeing a show and could be having the experience I had sitting in a theater. So I have to get up and do it and do it for that person. Right. You might not see them. They're sitting in the dark. And, you know, but they're there, you know? Like, it's like the monk going, oh, damn it, do I have to go out there and light those damn candles? <laughs> uh, you know, I, uh, I got to say this damn sermon now. It's like, yeah, actually you do. But one more thing that I wanted to say is that while you were talking about, you know, and I, I said something about, like, there is no path. I don't mean that there's no path. There's no one path. There's, you know, the truth is one path so many, and when you're an artist, you know that. This you know, shit show of a pandemic and this crisis of, of culture and relations, you know, this <laughs> existential dilemma that we have that is a caste system and how we portray it on, like, how we perform. That the happy accidents that happen in, like, Zoom performances, the way we try to create art... It's something that we haven't done before. And it's actually telling a new kind of language. Like theater is going to be changed because theater artists are on Zoom now. And, you know, like we did Angels in America last night, which was a really incredible example of how, you know, we can do it. <laughs> we can do this. And by doing it, we can actually develop another form of a medium, which is neither television nor film nor theater, but like, some extra other thing like we will keep it happening you know yeah. we don't even know how it's gonna go so i'm so happy that you're part of that me too i'm happy you're part of it too i'm happy to be arting with you daphne <laughs> yes we are ellie um can you repeat the website for the empathy concerts and i think we're also going to put it up on our website if that's okay with you yeah it's www.mazie.com that's m-a-s-i-e Com, and we've done 20 of these empathy concerts. You'll see some of your favorite Broadway stars singing songs. You'll also see some corporate learning and development people talking about what they're going through in their companies. You know, people that work in hospitals, first responders, people that work at CNN, people that work at Zoom, sort of what they're going through, people that work at McDonald's and sort of what they're going through with their employees. So it's a really interesting intersection of both things and learning from each other. And we're going to continue to do them, you know, that our next one is next Friday. I love it. You know, we talked before a little bit ago about how we're going to make change, the conversations, what needs to happen, who needs to be in the room. For you, Telly, what is your hope for the theater when we come out of this? What's your vision for it? What do you want? I didn't expect in 2020 to have difficult conversations about racial equity 
and the racial DNA and structures in our country. That was not something I expected. But now that we're having that conversation, there's no going back and pretending like you didn't hear it. So I think going forward with theater, making sure that we are inclusive of those voices that we have long ignored, whether or not we mean to silence them or not, but that just haven't been heard, I think is important. And I hope that the theater of tomorrow is stories I've not heard of, that every time I walk in a theater, I am surprised and my world, my vision of the world is broadened because I am hearing a story I've not heard. And that theater is the means by which I hear that story. That the theater and the people that are in charge of that theater gave space and gave room and gave an opportunity for someone to tell a story that did not have a chance to be told before I walked in that theater. That is my hope, is that we are constantly being surprised by theater. And I will admit, for a little while, we were not surprised by theater, especially the commercial theater. I am not surprised when I hear that there's yet another catalog of music, music that I probably love, that gets turned into a musical. That's no longer surprising to me. I am now ready for that story about people that I don't know, because I think only then can theater really be an agent for change. When I'm sitting in a theater, the way we all sat at home and watched what happened to George Floyd, theater does that in a way. We are forced to sit together, share an experience together, see someone's stories, all sides of that story, and come out understanding the world a little better because we know someone now that we didn't know before we walked in that theater. That should always be the goal of theater. I think some theater has lost sight of that, but that's always what good theater does to me. It's also what good church does to me. Do you know what I mean? It's like, or good, or good, or good classrooms, good lessons do to me is that you leave smarter and better, you know? So I don't know, like I, that's, my, that's my hope. I'm so grateful to you. I'm such a big fan, Telly. I think you are a, a gift to us. Your artistry shines through in everything that you do, in your voice, your activism, and your... Eric wants to say your soul. That's what it is. Thank you. <laughs> Daphne can read my thoughts and knows me well, so... I'm just a control freak, but... <laughs> but I love it. So, Telly, thank you so much. Thank you, audience, for asking the questions. Thank yes. you, Daphne, for co-hosting with me. Telly, I, I can't wait to see what this Christmas special is all about. Yes. yes. Um, Popcorn. Follow uh, Telly on his Instagram and all of his social media. And once again, the empathy, would you just say that one more time? Yeah, it's an empathy concert and you can register for free at Maisie.com. That's M-A-S-I-E.com and it's on Zoom. M-A-S-I-E.com. Thank you, Telly Leong. You're amazing. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. And that's our show. Next week, John Andrew and I will interview Tony Award-winning actor Tanya Pinkins, which will air on October 30th. November 6th, we will air our conversation with Iranian-American actor, writer, filmmaker, and transgender activist Julia Moseni. And on November 13th, Daphne and my interview with television, film, and stage actor Karen Oliva will air. I'm really excited to talk to Karen about West Side Story, In the Heights, by the way, Vera Stark and her numerous off-Broadway appearances. More information on these guests and how to attend one of our recordings online can be found on our website, live at thelortel.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Lucille Lortel Theater. Live at the Lortel is produced by George Forbes, executive producer, yours truly, associate producer, Jeffrey Schubert. Press is provided by Sin Gogolak. GoGo Public Relations, and our social media is managed by Mia Roddy. Special thanks to Nancy Hurwitz 
and Alana Canty Samuel. Live at Delortel is recorded online by Brian Falk, Abacus Entertainment. While theaters are closed, we hope you will consider donating to the COVID-19 Emergency Relief Fund at actorsfund.org or your favorite theater company. Thank you so much for listening.